Hello, I'm Sean Murray and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. In this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. From redacting historical documents to suspicious fires that wipe out years of information helpful to victims of state violence, Britain has been less than forthcoming when questioned on its obligations under international law. This week, we look at the British government's latest attempts at burying its role in the recent conflict in Ireland. Before I introduce today's guest, we took the conversation cameras to check the public's response to the UK government's latest attempts at enacting legislation that seeks to halt future civil cases and inquests linked to killings during the conflict. Well, I think uh, the legacy bill has two simple purposes. The British government are seeking to indemnify the state forces and the proxies that operate on their behalf, murdering people in Ireland. Uh, they want to put the lid on their entire role uh, in the conflict. And secondly, they want to ensure that in the future they can send British soldiers to foreign countries to murder civilians, knowing that they have impunity. The thing's an absolute disgrace. Well, this is all highlighted by the Minister of Defence, who was pushing this legislation through the British Parliament in Westminster. And that is all there to aid and to exonerate British soldiers in uniform who have broke the law shooting British citizens, irrespective of they come from Republican backgrounds, Loyalist backgrounds, Catholic, Protestant or whatever. I think it's important to be very conscious of why it is that they're looking to push this through. Um, I think whenever uh, all the victims groups, all the political parties and all the human rights organisations are vehemently against this legislation, that we need to consider why they're so eager to rush it through. I believe that they're only doing this because this legislation serves one group and one group only, and that's the British government and British forces. Well, I don't think it's about victims. I think it's about the British government covering their own backs. Um, so it's about votes for them in England, nothing to do with here. I believe the victims have rights, all victims have rights, but I believe that the British government are looking for an amnesty for their own forces um, who carried out the atrocities during the conflict. So I grew up in Balmurphy. I was very familiar with the Balmurphy campaign, the Balmurphy massacre campaign and the Waiter Time for Truth campaign. I was there on the day in Corpus Christi Chapel when the judge made those announcements in relation to the Balmurphy massacre. And for nearly 40 years that truth was suppressed and it was hugely important for those families, the Waiter community, that they felt vindicated. And that's what has happened here. The British government has saw the success of campaigns like that, the success of campaigns throughout the North. And that's, that is the truth that they're trying to suppress. As always, we are joined by our resident co-presenter, Michelle Gildernew. Michelle is the current MP for Fermanagh and South Tyrone. She has served in the Northern Ireland Assembly as a former Minister for Agriculture and Rural Development and Chairperson of the Health Committee, amongst other things. Michelle has been a Sinn Féin activist since her teens and has been elected almost continuously since 1998. And today's special guest is Deputy Director of Amnesty International, NI, Grania Taggart. Her work as an advocate for many victims affected by the recent conflict has brought her to the halls of Westminster and further afield. Grania, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. 
Grania, is it your understanding that the British government is in breach of their international obligations with these latest proposals? I mean, the UK state has a long, dark history in covering up its human rights abuses. The Troubles Bill is probably one of the most serious and severe attacks on rights that I've seen, certainly in the, the many years that I've been working on human rights issues. It amounts to a de facto amnesty. It is effectively the UK government legislating to let state forces off with murder and other very serious crimes. So the bill is about removing all paths to justice for all victims of the conflict here. And to do that at a time when the existing paths, the existing mechanisms to get truth and justice to some measure of accountability, to do so at a time when they are working for victims, I think is particularly cruel. So these proposals, you know, they are rightly um, not supported by victims. They're not supported by anyone in the community here. And obviously we have seen serious and repeated concerns from the United Nations, the Council of Europe Commission on Human Rights, the Council of Europe Committee of Ministers, the US Congress, and, and indeed elsewhere. And I think what that demonstrates is that there is a very clear egregious attack on rights that this bill represents and it's not only we should not only be concerned about what that will mean for victims of the conflict here all victims but also we should be very concerned about the international precedent that will be set by the uk government effectively providing a blueprint for legislating to let state forces and other armed groups off with murder and torture and other very serious crimes and were you surprised when the house of lords amended parts of this legislation yeah, I mean, the, the House of Lords, the amendments that we've seen there, I think that reflected sort of broader public opinion. You know, there is no support for this immunity from prosecution and the very low threshold around that immunity being given. So effectively, you could have a member of the state forces, a former soldier, who could provide information that is either false or already in the public domain or is something that has already been given in a previous investigation which we know hasn't been human rights compliant and that will be enough to be granted that immunity from prosecution i think you know for the families and the very little input that they have in that process again that is a very significant betrayal of their rights it's effectively the uk government shielding perpetrators at the expense of victims Grania, um the Irish Taoiseach Leo Varadkar stated that while the bill has not yet been enacted, and certainly if it is enacted, if it does become law, we will then at that point give consideration to whether an interstate case is appropriate, so we certainly don't rule that out. In your opinion, is given consideration enough? Should he now state clearly that the Irish government will take a case to the European courts? Yeah, I mean, it's not enough to say that it's under consideration. I mean, we have been calling for the commitment of the interstate case to be made. You know, this bill is the UK government. It's a unilateral action by the government where they have departed from previous agreements and previous agreed way forwards to deal with, deal with the past here. I mean, effectively, the, the Irish government, they have a critical role to play here. They should be very clearly signalling to the UK government that if you pass this law, that we will take this case. It should be a very unequivocal commitment being made to that. Victims here need to see that. When the UK government is betraying and trying to overlook and ignore and disregard their rights, it's very important that the Irish government say that we will challenge this bill in the European Court of Human Rights. But it's not just about, you know, 
the, the imperative for that is not just the legal points, you know, the, the, the breaches of the European Convention on Human Rights that we know that this bill represents. It's more than that. This is about the Irish government signalling that there is a consequence to these actions, mm -hmm. that there is a consequence to betraying victims in this way. And for victims, many of whom have been fighting for decades through the courts to get some measure of truth and accountability, the Irish government taking this action, we would hope, would short circuit some of what seems to be the inevitable legal challenges that victims would be burdened with that they will have to, to take themselves. I mean for a victim to challenge this bill and we as Amnesty will be supporting victims in doing that, it takes years to exhaust the domestic courts to then go on to the European Court of Human Rights. If this bill becomes law the Irish government can petition and go directly to the European Court of Human Rights but they have to do that within a window of four months. So that should help give some support to victims and not leave them alone in this burden of seemingly inevitable legal challenge with this bill. Mm -hmm. And given that there's consensus, consensus across all political parties in Ireland mm -hmm. and the UK, bar, bar the Tories, mm -hmm. and multiple human rights groups, yeah. uh, how strident are the Labour Party? I mean, have they made this part of their manifesto? I mean, what we've seen so far is a commitment from the UK Labour Party to repeal this legislation. That's obviously a welcome commitment, but we need to see that translate into a very firm and unequivocal manifesto commitment. And you'd mentioned earlier the, the American government. How, how strong have the Americans been in all this? I mean, the US, US Congress and actually the US Senate, we've seen, again, um, very strong um, opposition to the bill. Um, and I think that's been very welcome, you know, right across the community here. We have been calling for the US administration to publicly put on record their opposition to this bill. We know that it's been raised privately, so we know that the US administration, given Biden's commitment to the peace process here under the Good Friday Agreement, we know that the administration has been raising the bill in private meetings with various UK ministers. But we don't think that's enough. In the way that we saw around the protocol bill, for example, where the US administration said, if you legislate in that way, it will directly impact um, any trade links. We should be seeing something the equivalent for this bill, given the very serious way it infringes the Good Friday Agreement, which, as we know, is the bedrock of our peace process here. And I think the way the UK are pursuing this dangerous legislative agenda. It's taken not only a wrecking ball to the Good Friday Agreement, but it's also undermining what is a very delicate peace. I don't think we should be taken for granted for one minute. Um, uh, I suppose the peace progress, uh, sorry, the peace process and how far we've come. And is there a reason why America hasn't been as strong as it previously was in regards to the trade deals, etc.? I mean, I suppose, you know, there is obviously the issue of, you know, US forces and their actions, obviously, in other conflicts. We don't know exactly what it is coming into play here. Some might, you know, wonder, is that the case? But I think, you know, we know the administration has been raising it. So we know that successive uh, British prime ministers have been coming um, under pressure from the US with this bill. But it regrettably hasn't had the effect of the UK government giving pause to this legislative process and, I suppose, re-entering into good faith negotiations with the Irish government and with political parties here and indeed the wider community. You know, the Stormont House Agreement was the first time we had that degree of cross-community, broad-based consensus. It obviously took many years to get to that point. So to recklessly renege on that and to then put in place what is a de facto amnesty an entirely, you know, internationally unprecedented amnesty. You know, we haven't saw anything like this elsewhere. So to do it in that way, I think um, we simply don't know what the consequences of this are going to be, other than the very immediate closing down those paths to justice for victims. But 
most of the parties here were back in the Stormont House Agreement. Yeah. It's not good enough just to go back to that point. We have to undo some of the damage that this legacy process has gone through, don't we? Yeah, it's exactly that. So it's sort of it's Stormont House Agreement Plus. So if we think of Stormont House Agreement as the foundation for what we'll need um, in a sort of post led you know post this bill obviously becoming law so we're going to need to look at the ways we can undo the damage and the provisions of the bill having taken effect and how we effectively give back to victims what this bill is trying to remove mm -hmm. you're still tuned into the conversation your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs through an Irish lens I'm joined by my co-host Michelle Gildernew alongside our special guest Deputy Director of Amnesty International NI Grania Taggart. So Grania, um, this might be a very difficult question to answer, but how do you see a fair approach that sees accommodation for both traditions? Is that even possible? It is possible. We had that agreement. You know, it was the Stormont House Agreement. That was our roadmap for how we deal with the legacy of the conflict here. It was our agreed way forward. I think, you know, when we're addressing the legacy of the past, there's always going to obviously be inherent difficulties, you know, with doing that. I think, you know, we're never going to we're unlikely to see agreement around obviously the history of the conflict and you know um, some of those points but what we can do is deliver a route for victims to get some measure of truth and accountability and it was that Stormont House agreement it's you know what you don't do is effectively what the UK government are doing here which is removing access to the courts removing um, that due process of law I mean that is a very significant interference in the justice system here it's wholly undermining of the rule of law and I think you know for for many victims it's why we have seen this near united you know front a front right across the community where everyone has been in agreement that this is just not the way forward and not what they want and I think you know with Stormont House agreement you know there was a draft builder that was consulted on and the overwhelming response showed that right across the community here there is no support for an amnesty mm -hmm. so that is effectively what the UK government are trying to introduce against the will of people here yeah and the victims and survivors don't all there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to this is there the, the, but truth is important to to the vast majority of people affected I think the majority of victims you know want to get to the truth of what happened to their loved ones they want in some cases for the public record to be corrected around the events obviously mm -hmm. that led to their their love their loved ones losing their lives so it is about, um, for a lot, about getting that truth. But some also obviously want, you know, justice in the form of obviously criminal justice processes as well. And some want sort of the combination of that truth and accountability. And obviously it varies what that accountability can look like, you know, for example, through civil claims, etc. But, you know, I think what victims do have in common is they do need acknowledgement of what happened to their loved ones. There needs to be some way of accounting for the past, acknowledging that loss, correcting the record where it needs to be corrected, and then moving forward in what is a continuation of our peace process. You know, we're not there yet. We might have a degree of relative peace, but it is very much still a process. It is ongoing as opposed to 25 years after the a Good Friday Agreement. It's job done. It's always yeah. a work in progress. Yeah. Now, Grania, one aspect uh, of this legislation would be to halt all civil cases and inquests and as we know families have been quite successful uh, in this last number of years as a method of, of attaining uh, some semblance of justice could you talk about that yeah, I mean, I think, you know, inquests in particular are sort of, uh, well, both inquests and civil claims have been delivering for victims. Certainly civil cases when we think of, you know, reparations and truth recovery, you know, in particular. 
But inquests, I think, um, have been really important to victims. If we consider cases like um, the Ballamurphy massacre, you know, the official state record had been that these were IRA gunmen and women. Obviously, the courts found that these were 11 innocent civilians and corrected then what had been a narrative that had dominated at the time and obviously in the years since. So for the Ballamurphy families, you know, that was a vindication of what had been a near 50-year battle for that truth. And there is a question of, are some of these mechanisms, are inquests, etc., working a bit too well, you know, for, particularly for victims? And that's why we're seeing the UK government swoop in in the way that they are to close down, you know, those existing mechanisms, which, as we know, is a piecemeal approach, but has been delivering. So I think Bala Murphy is probably one of the, the standout examples. And we've seen a number of families who are going through the inquest process at the minute, like the Spring Hill massacre families as well. And they are... You know, again, they are families who lost loved ones who just want the truth of what happened. And they're engaged in that inquest process at the minute. What the UK government have done has come in on top of that process and they've changed the bill very recently again to mean that inquests will be brought to an end by the 1st of May 2024, unless they're at the point of getting a verdict. Now, a lot of those inquests, and certainly Spring Hill, you know, they take at least two years to obviously get to that point. So what the UK government have done here is effectively incentivise not to cooperate with that inquest process to effectively run down the clock to the 1st of May next year. Um, and I suppose then to effectively not cooperate with things like disclosure, things that are essential for these families in getting truth. And we've been in court, we've seen how good they are in running the clock down at redacting papers and just blocking any attempts to get to the truth. Effectively, the British government don't want an international spotlight on their actions in the conflict in Ireland. You know, is that a fair assessment? I mean, I don't think the UK government have made any secret of the fact that this bill is about protecting state forces. There has been a narrative created around, you know, vexatious claims and a witch hunt, etc., of veterans, as, as we hear. But the reality is there has been one prosecution in 25 years. These are not vexatious claims. These are merely families who have been failed for decades mm -hmm. by not having mechanisms in place to deliver their, the truth and justice that they're entitled to. This is the UK government effectively saying, we're shutting that down. And in fact, what we're going to replace it with is so inferior that they'll never get the truth of really what happened. So it's why, in addition to closing down those judicial processes, there's the oral history, you know, part of this. Mm -hmm. It is that rewriting of history in a way that is convenient um, and in a way that the UK government want to manage. Uh, we see, I suppose, the UK governments and the UK states influence and uh, role in, in over the bill and over the bodies that it sets up, you know, as well. There's a very significant influence there. It's about managing this process. And you've mentioned, just for our viewers, because a lot of them will be international viewers, could you tell us exactly what had happened during the Ballamurphy massacre? So these were 11 civilians who were shot um, in various locations through the Ballamurphy area, which is a, a part of West Belfast that is predominantly nationalist Republican community. And in those, at that time, um, the UK government and UK state forces in covering up what happened, they effectively said that these were gunmen and women and that the use of force was justified. We saw in the media at the time, there's various media clippings that portray this in a very sympathetic light for those um, state forces. But what we then, in successive years, what we saw then was those families come together and actually start to piece together what happened, you know, around those events, what happened um, uh, around the death and the loss of their loved ones. And they effectively then fought 
a very long campaign to get to the courts, to get through the, those court processes and to have truth delivered. So it's really testament, I think, to those families' determination that that come out. But it's also, I think, a real damning indictment of the UK government and the way they've handled the legacy of the conflict here and obviously uh, dealing with the past. Because at every point, families have faced obstruction, they face you know, information that has been denied. So it has really been through them never giving up and continuing to push, which is why they've got that measure of truth that they've got. And it's exhausting. I mean, this has been drawn out for so many years and people were labelled, as you said, as, as gunmen and women when they were innocent people going about their business. Um, for a lot of the families, they've already lost mothers and fathers. People have died without getting the truth and without getting the justice that they deserve, haven't they? I, I mean, if we think of the case of, you know, Majelle O'Hare, mm -hmm. you know, she was 12 years old when a soldier shot her in the back. Now, she wasn't a gun man or woman, you know, she was a child walking up the street to church. And her dad was a caretaker in the local school and he heard the gunfire and ran out to help whoever it was, that he, whoever's aid he needed to come to, not realising that he was going to be watching his daughter effectively bleed to death. And for those who were um, witnesses on the day, there was, for example, a woman, Alice, who was a nurse and she was trying to get to Magella to actually give, obviously treat her, to try uh, and apply some emergency first aid or, and help her whilst um, before she was taken to the hospital. And the abuse that they received, that they have spoken to, you know, since, the, you know, Alice recalls that Magella was effectively thrown into an army helicopter like a piece of meat and then brought to the local hospital where she obviously, she died. So that's a 12-year-old child. Now, in that case, the UK's Ministry of Defence, they apologised for her killing in 2011, but there was no action or accountability that followed, despite the soldier in that case being known. So sadly, we see this repeated uh, with many cases right across the north. What happens if this legislation goes through? I mean, what's next for victims? I mean, the UK government have a very comfortable majority in the UK Parliament to push this legislation through and it's very clear that that's what they're intent on doing, that they're ignoring the overwhelming opposition that this bill is facing and they're going to push it through to law. What that means is victims are effectively being condemned to further years of legal battles fighting through the courts, obviously to have their rights vindicated. So that is effectively what this bill is condemning them to. But I think it's really important that victims understand that they're not on their own. You know, that there's organisations like Amnesty and others that will stand with them in this fight and against, obviously, this bill, eventually to hopefully overturn it um, after the next general election, but meanwhile, certainly to, to support their challenges uh, through the courts. But it also means, you know, for some victims, you know, we can't ignore the sad reality that many victims are quite elderly now. And this means that this is effectively the UK government um, removing their prospect for justice forever, mm -hmm. unless they have loved ones and family members who are willing to sort of pick, you know, take up this button and continue the fight on behalf of the family. They shouldn't have to be doing that. We shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't have a government that is effectively legislating to let people off with murder. But it's unfortunately, it's the reality of where things are at the minute. And for victims, the only outcome is that they'll have to continue to fight on in the way that they have over successive decades. Grania, thanks for joining us. This week, we take a look at the legacy of a man once voted the greatest ever Britain in a BBC poll. Whether you reside in Mumbai, Greenwich, Belfast or Baghdad, you're sure to have a certain view on one of the 20th century's most controversial figures. When the history of Ireland is written, 
and we look back on our greatest leaders, statesmen and women, names such as Michael Collins, James Conley, Winifred Carney, or Mary McAleese should surely make the cut. But what of our closest neighbour? In consistent British polls, the name Winston Churchill has been a dominant feature in encapsulating that great British bulldog tradition. For a man who ordered the Black and Tans into Ireland in 1920 in a desperate attempt to defeat the Irish Rebellion, the platitudes on this side of the Irish Sea are few and far between, bait for a small number of secret admirers of the Fianna Gael tradition. Now, it's understandable considering Churchill's unassailable leadership during the Second World War and galvanising the British public under the threat of Nazi invasion, that some of his more ignoble exploits be overlooked. But do we really see the righteous scales of justice applied to the legacy of a man who once described the Indian nation as a beastly people with a beastly religion? These prejudices were further compounded by Churchill's action in prioritising the stockpiling of food for Britain, overfeeding Indian subjects during the Bengal famine of 1943. It seems that a lesson had not been learned of the actions of Queen Victoria in overseeing the Great Irish Famine of the 1840s. During the Great Hunger, roughly one million people died and over one million left the country. But whether we view Churchill as a great saviour from fascism, or the devil of Dresden? Are we able to put these racist tropes into context and explore his more affable attributes? Can we really cancel a man who gave one of the greatest political oratories of the 20th century with his we shall fight them on the beaches homily? History is complex and is shaped by a rich tapestry of varying narratives. This mosaic of stories allows us to evaluate and reevaluate the past. But first, we must have an open and honest discussion a warts and all approach. A binary approach to Churchill's legacy within British society only reinforces these historical tropes, making them acceptable to some in contemporary times. While the Irish or their Indian counterparts need no convincing, it might be for the greater good in Old Blighty that the conversation begins now. And that does it for another week. We'd love for you to join the conversation by sharing the link to today's programme and helping us to grow our audience across all our social media platforms. I'd like to thank our special guest, Grania Taggart, and our co-resident host, Michelle Gildenew. In the meantime, the conversation will be back next week with more investigations and analysis. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.